Hello and welcome to the Parabola Podcast. I'm story editor Betsy Cornwell. Today I'll be sharing with you some excerpts from our current summer 2021 issue, Young and Old, and I'll begin with the focus from editor Jeff Zaleski. I am of old and young, wrote Walt Whitman, of the foolish as much as the wise. These words from this issue convey well the fruits of this summer 2021 edition of Parabola. Our younger selves seed what we become, and as we age, we carry our earlier years with us. A sage elderly woman once told me, some things you can only understand when you're old. Yet equally true is that the young can know what would the old forget. Become as little children, Jesus taught. The young have much to gather from the old and the old from the young. Jim Christofik's essay here, Return of the Runner, tells the powerful story of an aging Navajo who runs to remind the young of his people's history. Catherine Paris's contribution, Catch a Falling Star, by contrast celebrates children's spiritual awakenings despite the skepticism often leveled by adults. Young and old are eager to learn from one another when approached openly. In Fred Cheney's affecting story, The Lesson, a young girl gets unexpected and welcome direction from an old man. Lillian Firestone's A Hunger for Reality, a memoir of working with the young at spiritual centers, explores how children and adults can enlighten one another in turn, while Ken Crushell's inspiring article, The Desk, depicts an extraordinary collaboration among school children, their teachers, and other adults. With reflections by filmmaker Kent Jones on the special power of classic movies, two haunting folktales, interviews with Sufi master Llewellyn Vaughan Lee and religious studies pioneer Houston Smith, and much more, we hope that this issue will benefit all readers of any age. We'll turn now to Parabola intern Cerny Malloy, reading her epicycle from this issue, The Voyage of Bran. legend retold by Cerny Malloy. On a night where the veils between the worlds are thin, the High King of Ireland, Bran McFable, falls into a deep sleep. Within his dreams is a tree that is saturated with the silver light of the moon. Hanging like lanterns from its branches are the golden glowing apples of the sun. A very beautiful woman is perched bird-like within its branches. In speaking to Bran, she enamors him with a story of an island that bestows upon its inhabitants endless youth, beauty, and health. In the morning when he wakes, Bran gathers a crew. The dream stirred something within Bran. As a man who loves life and feels experience deeply, he realized he does not want this vibrancy to ever fade. Neither do the men whom he gathers. With the dream of this wonderful island glowing in their minds, the crew push away from land and fix their gaze on where the sea meets the sky. The sun rises behind them. For many days they travel over the creases of the currents. 
when they are very far from shore, a green light shimmers from below the surface of the water. The light of the sun picks out shapes of flowers, petals traced in the ocean. Mananan MacLear, god of the sea, crystallizes in the opulent light and describes to them a lush meadow that is on a plane currently aligned closely with their own. Dancing to the rhythm of the waves, encouraging the crew onwards, Mananan scatters in the white sea spray. As the sun melts into the pale sea, Bran's crew reach an island where laughter rings out into the borderless sky. The islanders, overcome with mirth, take no notice of the ship resting against the island's shore. Bran sends a man to explore the island, but as soon as the man sets foot on the sand, he too is senseless with laughter. He no longer recognises his high king nor his crewmates. This island, where the course of emotion is stilled at a single point, has proven to be an evil place. There is a heavy sense of foreboding, but Bran does not wish to acknowledge it. There is still some light in the day. With grief, the crew moves away from the island to continue their voyage, abandoning their crew member to a happy insanity. Before long, another island takes shape within the colouring horizon. Fearful now, they approach slowly. But flying through the air comes a ball of brightly coloured wool that quickly wraps around Bran's hand and secures him. On the shore, a woman holds the end. She begins to wind the wool around her finger and each loop pulls the ship in closer to her. And it is not long before Bran realises this is the woman of his dream. There are only women on this green and low island and Bran's crew are soon dizzy with their beauty. This is the island of everlasting, ever faithful beauty, health and youth. In a whirl of excitement and triumph, the men leap off the ship and hurry to rejoice for their journey's end. Music, food, women and a complete absence of weariness swirl around Bran and his men and wrap them into a contented bliss. Yet this bliss cannot last forever. After a time, the hollow ache of homesickness begins to fill Nechthon, one of Bran's crew members. Despite the joy and prosperity of this lovely island, his soul strains for home. He dreams of his imperfect country, his house, his family, and all their flawed and wholesome beauty. So he pleads with his king. He begs to return. With Nekton's words, Bran too begins to feel that ache, and a deep love for his home is reignited inside him. All of the men are soon moved, and so they begin preparations for the return journey. The women are sorry to see them go and try to change their minds, but Bran is firm. He feels an urgency deep within him, finally emerging. The journey home is a long and wistful one, hollow with the absence of the island and the island's women. The farther they go, the more fluctuating the weather, the more jolting the time. But eventually, the dark, stark cliffs of Ireland shadow the horizon. Beyond them are soft green mountains and patchwork fields. An easing, a sighing flows through the crew. Home. Their voyage's circle has been completed.
ashore, many people gather to see this grand and mysterious ship float into the bay. Bran, at the prow, calls to them, announcing his crew's long-awaited return. In the evening light, his silhouette against the spreading pink of the sky is striking. It will stay in the memory of many of the spectators. As will the soft mist rising from the water and the pale glowing light surrounding the base of the ship. King Bran? Bran is not our king. I have heard the name Bran, but that king was very long ago. Nechton, heedless with excitement, hurries to the side of the boat and leaps onto the sand and dissolves into a cloud of pale dust that is swept swiftly away by the salty wind. How many years have passed? A shuddering knowledge presses down upon Bran and his crew. Hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of seasons have tumbled by on Ireland while Bran and his men rejoiced on the Isle of Women. The thread linking them to their home was broken. Feeling what has happened deeply, Bran shuts his eyes and steadies himself with his circling, vibrant breath. In a low but echoing voice, he then sings out their story so the people of his country will know what happened. Behind him, the sun moves further and further outside of this world. When his tale is done, a solemn silence floats in the evening. In wonder, the crowd watches as the crew slowly and so mournfully turn the ship around to once more journey into the curving and shimmering horizon. Let's turn now to another piece from our current issue. This is Finding the Way Home by David Guy. The morning my father died, we had barely gotten back from the hospital when there was a knock at the door and my mother opened it to Mrs. Shriver, a neighbor from across the street. She was an older woman with a ruddy, deeply lined face, kept herself busy with outdoor sports like golf and trout fishing. I don't think she'd ever been in our house. She stepped forward to embrace my mother, a total shock to me. Hugging wasn't as common in 1965. Then she put a card on the table that stood beside the front door. She said a few words, turned around, and left. She'd been there all of about 30 seconds. Why'd she do that, I said. What, my mother said. Leave that card. So we'll know she was here. We can send her an acknowledgement. It's considered polite. How did she even know my father had died? We'd just gotten back. I believe I was in a state of shock. I didn't know it at the time. My mother had gotten a call from the hospital that morning saying my father had taken a turn for the worse. She called my sister Sally to come over and went to the hospital with my brother Bill. My father wasn't conscious by the time they got there. Bill called me at my friend's house where I'd spent the night, told me to get to the hospital as soon as I could but by the time I got there, my father had died. Bill was standing in the lobby, tears pouring from his eyes, waiting to tell me. I knew it before he said it. I knew it when I got the call. I'd been expecting that call for months. 
I stood there in a state of numbness, utterly divorced from my surroundings. An intern in a white coat stepped up to me and shook my hand. You have my deepest sympathy, he said. No one had ever spoken to me that way. I had suddenly, it seemed, become an adult. Sally was at the house with her husband and two small children. Rusty was upstairs watching TV as he did every morning. He was nine years old, knew my father had been ill, in and out of hospitals for years, but didn't know he'd had leukemia and was dying. My mother had to go upstairs now and tell him that was what we all dreaded. He screamed bloody murder. No, mom. No, no, mom. My sister's husband, Don, the most stoical person I knew, blanched at the sound. It was blood-curdling, the unbridled version of how we all actually felt. Later that morning, my grandparents showed up, my mother's father and mother. They, too, had not known my father had leukemia. My parents had known for six years, hadn't wanted to tell anyone at first because my father was a doctor and didn't want his patients to be alarmed. Gradually, they told this person and that one, explaining why they had waited so long. Somehow, they never got around to her parents. My grandfather was an upbeat, convivial person, great fun to be around, in his late 80s at that point. He'd come over dressed in a suit, as he always did. I met him at the coat closet. Hello, Dave, he said. He had a dark, stunned expression on his face that I'd never seen. Bill Guy is dead, he said. I don't believe it. The next day, when we went to visiting hours at the funeral home, I drove the car, let the family out at the front door, and proceeded around to the parking lot in the back. I saw that my three best friends had arrived, Gordon, Jerry, and Creston, all together. Somehow, though they'd be coming into the funeral home, I couldn't face them, turned and walked away. But Creston called out to me, walked over to where I'd left the car, turned off the engine, took out the keys, and shut the door. I'd left the door open and the motor running. He handed me the keys without a word. He looked at me as if I were out of my mind. I think I was. The funeral was two days later. We gathered in an outer parlor before walking into the sanctuary. I vaguely remember walking in. After that, nothing. I have no memory of my father's funeral. It's a blank, a black hole. My life divides rather neatly into two parts in my mind, before my father died and after, or perhaps before I knew he had leukemia and after. Everything changed from one of those moments to the other, like the intern speaking to me that way, or Mrs. Shriver hugging my mother. The world suddenly didn't make sense. Healing from my father's death, however, took an immense amount of time. Didn't really begin until 19 years later, when I met a therapist named Victor Zinn. The time in between was a kind of limbo, though I continued to live my life. I saw two other therapists, both of whom were helpful. I wrote essays and a novel about my father's death, wrote another novel. But the healing began when I met Victor. It was he who made me whole. Not perfect, but whole. He was a physical man, tall and thin, good-looking, relaxed in his body. He'd been a major league pitching prospect when he was younger, had also for a time been hired by a disco to get out on the floor and start dancing so everyone would come out. He was a serious, competitive tennis player, devoted a huge amount of time to the game. His office featured large, block-like chairs, and one of the things I remember most was the way he sat in his chair, arms on the chair arms, perfectly open and utterly relaxed, ready for whatever came his way. He rejected nothing. At first I was wary, 
The person who recommended him told me he had a spiritual bent and I was prickly about religion or any kind of spirituality. If he'd shown that in our first few meetings, I would have bolted, but he never did. I told him I'd be checking him out for the first few sessions, and he was unfazed. That's your right. My previous therapist had been a woman, and I felt she understood me in a way that male therapists didn't. I went on about that for a while, the way men and women were different, women less judgmental. I think you need a good therapist, he said, male or female. He told me a story at our second session. As a young man, he'd worked with speech therapists at whatever school he went to. It wasn't until he was a teenager that a therapist mentioned rather casually that Victor had been born with a cleft palate. He thought Victor knew. Victor was furious with his parents for not having told him, went home and raged at them. They'd had a misplaced kind of shame. His mother in particular blamed herself for giving birth to such a child. The idea that his parents were ashamed of him was something he'd never known. He'd found it devastating. For years, as he saw therapists, he worked on that sense of shame, that feeling there was something fundamentally wrong with him. That wound was central to who he was. Finally, after a session of group therapy, there was an exercise where the others talked about the way they saw him, and nobody said anything about the cleft palate. He brought it up, and they said, that's not part of you. It's no longer a part of who you are. I'd noticed the slight wound from where the surgery had repaired it, but it was true the overall impression had nothing to do with that. You didn't think of him that way. I tell you that story because, whatever you're coming to me with, it can be healed. There can be a time when it's no longer part of you. I say that without knowing why you're here or what you're dealing with, but it's the basis of all my work. Healing is possible. I didn't believe him. I thought what was wrong with me, it didn't seem to be one thing but many, was not fundamentally curable. I might learn to cope, to walk, so to speak, through life with a limp. But that fundamental problem was part of me. I didn't expect ever to be rid of it. I'd come to him because a friend and mentor, the novelist Reynolds Price, had recently been diagnosed with a malignant tumor on his spine. His condition was so unusual, the possibility of treating it so new, that no one had any idea of the prognosis. I wrote in the morning and had afternoons off, so I was available to see him frequently, and we got much closer, visiting maybe three times a week. For the first few months, I assumed he was dying. The visits reminded me of seeing my father at the hospital. I'd met Price 18 months after my father died, and he'd become a substitute father for me. Some days after a visit, my stomach hurt so much that I was bent double in my car, waiting for the pain to subside before I could drive home. I wasn't seeing a therapist because I wanted to. I had to. I was in terrible pain. For that reason, it was odd that in one of the early sections, I talked to Victor about my compulsive sexuality, the way I'd spent years, over 10 years, going to massage parlors for illicit sex. That had been a major part of how I'd coped with my deep anxiety. It seemed to have nothing to do with my father's death. But when that session was over, Victor said, that was good, David. We're going to get somewhere. It was all part of the same brokenness. Victor wasn't glib of tongue. You imagine the quintessential shrink, some guy in a movie, and you can't get past him. He's got an answer for everything you say. Victor was not like that. He sometimes apologized for not being more verbal. You said things to him and they slowly penetrated. He sat there and took a long pause. Finally, he spoke in a halting way. But he heard everything you said. It sank into a deep well. He was great at interpreting dreams. I asked what approach he took, Freudian, Jungian, I had read both men, and he said he didn't have one. He heard the dream and spoke from an intuitive place. 
but that was most helpful, gave me a new approach to my dreams. Another thing I learned from him was how to listen. I came from a tradition where you didn't take in what the other person said, heard the first few words, and prepared your witty rejoinder. Victor was not like that. He was the greatest listener I ever met. Our time for this month's podcast has come to an end, but you can read the rest of that essay, Finding the Way Home by David Guy, in our current summer 2021 issue, Young and Old, which you can order individually at store.parabola.org, or you can read it by becoming a subscriber at parabola.org slash subscribe. And I'd also love for you to join us on our vibrant social media communities on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the Parabola Podcast. Parabola.